Well, today we start a new short series just on the, some of the introductions of Paul's letters. We're not going to look at the whole letter, just the introduction, and today just three verses. Um, but they're packed full of good things to learn about. So how about I pray for us and then we'll look at Titus, that reading we've already had from verses 1 to 3. Loving Father, thank you so much for your great goodness towards us in every possible way. And it's our prayer now, Lord, that you'll speak to us through your word, that your Holy Spirit will bring it to our minds, apply it to our lives. Amen. Well, in a nutshell, Paul's introductions to his various letters sort of are a summary of, of the things he thinks is important as he then goes to unpack things in the letters. So today we're going to take a close look at Titus chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. And at the outset, I want to say this. Faith without knowledge is wishful thinking. Faith without knowledge is wishful thinking. And knowledge without faith changes nothing. And that's the focus of this introduction in Paul's letter to Titus, faith and knowledge. So let's take a look at it. He starts off with these words. Paul, a servant of God. Paul, a servant of God. It's the only place in any of Paul's letters where he calls himself a servant of God. But you might go, well, what's so important about that? In other letters, he describes himself as a servant of the gospel or as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you think about it, those things are fundamentally the same, aren't they? If you are a servant of God, you are a servant of his son, Jesus Christ. And if you're a servant of Jesus, you're a servant of the gospel, the message about Jesus. Because you remember Jesus himself said, you can't serve two masters. So if Paul is a servant of God and a servant of Christ and a servant of the gospel, it's all the same thing. If you serve God, you must be a servant of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And I can say that because you remember Jesus' final words to his disciples before he ascends into heaven? Anybody know what they were? Matthew 28. Go into all the world and preach to God and make disciples of all nations. Yeah, that's right. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. And so as the disciples do that, they make disciples. These words apply to them and apply to those disciples and apply to those disciples. So our role as God's people is to introduce people to the Lord Jesus, to make disciples of all people. And of course, that's an ongoing process, isn't it? And so the word servant, have a think about that. He's a servant of God. That's a, can I say it's a confronting word? We read that all the time and we just sort of goes in one ear and out the other ear. But it's a confronting word because he's talking about his status, not about what he does. See, I can serve you by doing something for you. That doesn't make me your servant. I'm choosing to serve you and I'm choosing when I'm not going to serve you. Paul here there says he is a servant of God. A ser- that's his status before God. A servant is a person who does what they're told, isn't it? You're not an employee with a life of your own. You're not an independent contractor. (laughs) You're not a butler or a nanny. No, you're a servant. In fact, the word is interchangeable with the word slave in the Bible. Slave and servant, same thing. I'm a child of God. 
If you're a Christian, you're a child of God. If you're a Christian, Jesus is your brother. If you're a Christian, Jesus calls you his friend. But at the same time, we are servants. You go, how does that work? You know, it's a bit like one of those, um, have you seen those, those timber puzzles of a globe? And, and you have to put the whole thing together and you've got to sort of hold it in place while you're slotting new bits in. It's, there's this complex picture of what we are as God's people. We're friends of Jesus. We're adopted sons and daughters of God. We're heirs of the kingdom, but we're also servants. And we've got to hold all those things in tension. Here's, here's what Jesus himself said. Have a look at it. John 15. If you keep my commands, you'll remain in my love, just as I have kept my father's commands and remain in his love. So this friendship we have with Jesus involves obeying him. Just to make sure we don't miss the point, he says the same thing a little differently in verse 14, a few verses later. You are my friends if you do what I command. You want to go, what sort of friendship is that? If you said to me, I want to be your friend, but you've got to do what I say, I go, that's a pretty weird sort of friendship. But our friendship with Jesus is a different sort of friendship. It's not a friendship among equals. In fact, in Romans chapter 10, verse 19, Paul talks about how you become a Christian, and look what he says. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. See, part of being saved, part of joining God's family means we admit that Jesus is Lord. How's that for an altar call? You know, I get up here and I say, you need to be converted, you need to become Christians. Come to Jesus as a servant. Come and be his servant. But that's part of the gospel message, is it not? Come and be a servant. It's part of how we become Christians. We are heirs, we are children of God, we are friends of Jesus and we are servants. And so if you are a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's what, that's what you are, you're a servant. See, disciples in Jesus' day, I'm trying to think of a modern day equivalent, and it would be a trade apprentice. Anybody here been a trade apprentice in the past? Yes, there they are, the salt of the earth. And you know what it's like as an apprentice, you do all the dirty jobs the boss does not want to do. Isn't that right? All those horrible things. If you're an electrician, it's climbing up on the roof. If you're a plumber, it's doing all the digging. And a a, a disciple in Jesus' day was a bit like that. You followed the master around. You learned from him, but you also washed his feet, cleaned his shoes, prepared his meals, did his ironing, did his washing. You were his servant. That's what a disciple was. As well as being someone who learned, that was the price of learning from the master, you see. And so we voluntarily, as Christians... Become Jesus' servants. And if you think, oh, I'm not too sure about that, what does Jesus say? He says, I serve God. I obey God, even though I'm equal to him. I am God, but I obey God. So, you know, serving someone is not a sort of a lesser role. It's just a different role. So we have the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed. The early church had a three-word creed. Jesus is Lord. That was their creed. So Paul says, I am a servant of God. I'm going to move on. So the gospel, the good news that Paul also says he serves, is about Jesus, is it not? It's about Jesus as Lord. It's about Jesus being the great rescuer. 
It's about how God puts his rescue plan into effect through Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. And nothing more. That's the gospel message. The gospel is that Jesus has come, the Son of God has come, taken on human flesh, died in our place to rescue us. That's the gospel. Everything else is secondary. When Paul says, I serve the gospel, that's what he's saying. Everything else is secondary. Because the gospel is not about animal rights. It's not about prosperity and healing. It's not about any of those issues. All those things may be important, but the fundamental issue is Jesus Christ has come, he has died, he's risen again, and he's done it for us. The gospel does not include anything other than those. It's about rescue from sin and judgment. It has consequences for how we live, but that is the central part of the gospel. And so Paul can say in Romans chapter 1, famous verse, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. This is what I'm on about. It is about the gospel. I serve God, and in serving God, what I do is I proclaim the gospel. So Paul calls himself servant of God. I've spent, what, ten minutes talking about one little phrase. He also calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle was someone appointed by Jesus to teach and to have authority in the community of faith. That's what an apostle was. You know, there's a tendency sometimes in some parts of the Christian church to say things like this about Paul. Well, that's just Paul's opinion. He got it wrong. Or he was culture-bound. Or he was a misogynist. Or he just didn't fully understand our culture of the day. Paul says, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. And not just Paul, the apostle Peter Look at how he describes Paul's writings. He describes them as authoritative and as scripture. And he says, we shouldn't distort what Paul writes. We certainly shouldn't ignore it. In fact, Jesus himself said this of Paul. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. So, brothers and sisters, you can ignore the words and the message of God's chosen instrument, if you like, talking about Paul, but I wouldn't dare. Not with those words from the Lord Jesus Christ. He is my chosen instrument. And so when Paul says he's an apostle of Jesus Christ, could mean one of two things. Getting a bit technical here. Could mean... Uh, I am the apostle appointed by Jesus, or it could mean I am the apostle about the Lord Jesus. And it probably means both those things, doesn't it? Because we know in Acts 9, Jesus appointed Paul an apostle. But we also know um, that Paul said, "My my whole ministry, my whole mission in life is all about Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, this is what he says. For I... Um, resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Paul is an apostle appointed by Jesus, but his apostleship's all about the Lord Jesus. For what purpose? He goes on in Titus chapter 1 about the purpose. Here's what he says. The purpose is to further the faith of God's elect 
and their knowledge of the truth. There we go. Whoa, we've lost everything now. Okay. So I'm an apostle. There we go. A servant of God to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. Friends, here's the little uh, time bomb in this passage. The word elect. Notice that there? It's another word for chosen. I am an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, a servant of God, to further the faith of God's chosen people and their knowledge of the truth. Now, I want to say a couple of things here. Can't sort of sidestep this. The concept of election, of God choosing people, is throughout the Bible. In the New Testament, Jesus spoke about his people as the elect six times and as the chosen another five times. So 11 times in the Gospels, Jesus uses these words elect and chosen to talk about his people. And some people will say that that's not talking about predestination. And if you are a visitor with us today, predestination, predestination is the idea that God chooses us, we don't choose him. Some people say this is not talking about predestination, the elect. Uh, and there are a good many great Christian men and women and some good Bible teachers who hold that view. It's not about predestination. They will say God looks into the future and he can see who the people are who are going to choose to become Christians and so he chooses them back at this point. That's what they say the word elect means. Yeah, God does elect them, but because they're going to later elect God. That's one camp. It's called Arminianism. I'm going to get a bit technical here. After a bloke called Arminius in the late 1500s, who said that we have complete free will and we choose God. The other camp will say that God chooses us and then we're able to choose him. That's generally called Calvinism. Uh, Arthur John Calvin, who was around in the early to mid-1500s, and there are arguments both ways. In fact, Christianity is sort of, when I say divided, I don't mean disunity, but I mean there's a, there's a big proportion of Christianity that believe one, a big proportion of Christianity that believe the other. Paul here says that he is an apostle and servant of God for, to further the faith of God's elect. So if you are a free will person, an Arminian, that means Paul's role was to strengthen the faith of God's people. They're already Christians and he's going to strengthen their faith. If you believe in predestination, it means Paul's role is to start you off in the faith, to establish the faith of God's elect. Which camp? Uh, I will tell you where I stand. Personally, I think the language of election and choice is very strong and far too extensive in the Bible and too much is loaded upon it that we are God's chosen people to be explained any other way than God chooses his people before they ever choose him. Um, Jesus himself said, Matthew 22, many are invited, but few are chosen. Furthermore, Paul's mission in life, you read Corinthians, read the other passages, was to preach the good news where it hadn't been preached before. He said, I don't want to go and preach where other people have preached. I want to preach where no one has preached before, where people have never heard the gospel. So his big mission in life was to establish people in the faith, to see them converted and become Christians. And so how, how do I reconcile that? I am what 
is referred to in theological circles as a, I'm going to be, have trouble saying it, a compatibilist. A compat, that just means I take the middle road. Uh, I strongly believe in predestination, that God chooses us. But I also believe we choose God. And I believe those two views, some people say you can't believe one and, and that because they're, they're mutually exclusive. But they're not. They are compatible. I'll give you an example of how they may be compatible. I'm not saying this is what the Bible says, but it helps me to see, yes, it's possible for them to be compatible. Just assume that you are born sinful. Assume that you are a slave to sin and you're a slave to your passions. Um, God chooses you, gives you a new heart so that for the first time in your life you actually have a free will because before you were a slave to your passions and to your own selfishness. And suddenly now God's chosen me, I've got free will. Well, who, given absolute free will, would not choose to follow God? So I choose to follow God. I'm not saying that's the answer. That's the answer for me. But it does show that both those can be compatible because both are taught in the Bible. We call upon people to make a choice to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And we do that, and people do exercise a choice. But we know that God has an elect as well. And you want to ask, is it unfair then for God to choose some people and not others, in my view? That's the very question Paul addresses in Romans chapter 9. And I'm not going to address it. Go home and read Romans chapter 9. (laughs) Go home and read chapter... In fact, folks, you ought to be coming to church with your Bibles open... Because I don't want you going home and going, oh, that's just Dingwall's opinion. I have another opinion. I want you to go, what does the Bible actually say about this issue or that issue? You ought to be searching the scriptures for yourselves, not relying upon whatever sort of ideology you come up with or what other people say. Search the scriptures. If you've got problems about predestination or election or free will, read your Bible and see what it says. Don't take my word for it. But you'll see that I'm biblical. (laughs) <laughs> he also says that he's a servant and apostle, apostle to further the knowledge of the truth. See it there? To further the knowledge of the truth. Christian faith is based on knowledge. You can't put your faith into something you don't know about. That's just foolishness. That doesn't mean you have to understand everything about God or everything about election or everything about free will. It just means you understand enough of it to see that God is trustworthy and you're going to put your trust in him. Becoming a Christian is not a matter of putting your brain into neutral or, you know, taking a, a leap of faith. Faith without knowledge is wishful thinking. No, no. Paul says, I've come to promote knowledge of the truth. That's one of the roles of an apostle. And first and foremost, when he talks about the truth, he's talking about the word of God. He's talking about the scriptures, the Bible, and the teaching of the apostles, amongst which he is one. When he talks about his death and resurrection, Jesus referred to the Old Testament as God's word. And that it was completely reliable and it was the test of truth. So in a discussion about marriage and divorce, Jesus says to his opponents, "Uh, you're in error because you don't know the scriptures. And further on, have you not read what God said to you? And he refers back to the Old Testament. What God said to you, the words of the Old Testament. 
And then he based his argument, get this, on the tense of one verb. One word he bases his argument on because it's God's word, you see. People like to say that you can make the Bible say whatever you like. You might have said that. You would have heard people say it. Oh, you can make the Bible say whatever you like. It's boulder dash. It's mostly an excuse for not taking the Bible seriously. In nearly every discussion on what the Bible says, people are perfectly clear on what it says. It's very clear. When it talks about sexuality or it talks about theft or it talks about stealing or it talks about jealousy or it talks about marriage, it is very clear what the Bible says. The big issue is do you accept it or not? Do you think it applies to you today or not? The words of the Bible are clear. There's no dispute about nearly all the Bible in, in that sense. It really is, oh yes, but does that apply today in today's culture? Does that apply now with the scientific knowledge we have? That's the big issue. The application is not what the Bible is very clear. It's not a matter of your interpretation of the Bible. Can I say, the, search the Bible and you'll find what the Bible has to say very clear. No, it's a question of our application of it. And that's the issue. And I am concerned, more and more concerned, maybe because I'm getting old, but I am concerned that there are Christians who don't accept what the Bible says as the word of God. They try and explain the bits away that they don't like. I am concerned that there are Christians who don't know what the Bible actually says about some of these big issues in our culture. Paul says, I am promoting faith and I'm promoting knowledge for a reason. They lead to godliness. See that there? See, you were wondering, how is Bruce going to preach for you know, half an hour on three verses? Well, we're not even halfway through. Fear not, it gets quicker. <laughs> so, he's on about knowledge and truth that leads to godliness. We need to learn and we need to study the Bible, the word of God, because that's the truth. The Bible is essential to growing godliness. See, I used to think that all we had to do was to preach the good news, introduce people to Jesus, not worry too much about doctrine and theology and let them get on with you know, serving Jesus. I look back now and I go, that was just crazy. Because the more we know about God, the more we read about him in the Bible, the more we struggle with some of these big issues, the bigger our God gets and the more there is for us to love and serve and honour him and understand him. When I first met my wife, I was incredibly attracted to her long legs. But as I got to know her, I've embarrassed her now, as I got to know her, there was more and more and more to love. And the more we know about our God, the more there is to, to love. And folks, I'm not talking about falling in love with God. I know some of you use those terms. That's just No, to love, not fall in love, love. Falling in love is just a little part of love, isn't it? Those of us have been married for a good few years. It's a little bit. So we need to read our Bibles. And the more that we read the Bibles for ourselves, the less chance there is of us going off the rails. There, there are some things, some doctrines, some teaching around the Christian churches today that some of our forebears, if they heard it, would say, that is not Christian. That is an anathema. We died for the truth that you are now denying. 
In fact, in chapter 2, if you read on in Titus, Paul says to Titus, Mate, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. See, real faith and truth are meant to lead to godliness. They're not just meant to, you know, fill our minds. And so, so what's godliness? Well, if you read the rest of Titus, there are some examples. Paul talks about self-control. Uh, he says that's, that's an issue of godliness. I'll make a comment about self-control. I heard someone the other day say, oh, people can't help it, they were born like that. So? What about self-control? I was born sinful. Oh, the Bible tells me I need to learn to control that urge. I might be born as a sociopath. I need to learn to control that if I can. Being born some way doesn't mean to say you've got the right to exercise how you feel. Self-control, the Bible says. It uses self-control in nearly all lists about godliness. But he goes on, talks about not stealing, not being overbearing. Not being overbearing. Ah, haven't we all got bosses like that? Talks about the need to train, get this one, to train people how to love their partners and their children. Oh, see, we all thought that came naturally. Paul says to Titus, train people to love their spouses well. He tells Titus to teach his people to avoid malice and avoid envy and hating each other. In fact, it's living according to God's law, isn't it? See, we don't get accepted by God into his family by obeying his laws. But once we're in the family, this is how we want to live. We want to live lives that lead to godliness. The Bible says, for for, uh, you created us in Christ Jesus to live a life of good works. And all this, he says, getting back to Titus chapter 1, rests on the hope of eternal life. See that? He's a servant of God, an apostle. He wants to further the faith or establish the faith of God's people and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life. And when he uses the word hope, of course, that doesn't mean just sort of wishful thinking. A hope in the Bible is something that's off in the future that you're sure of but you haven't yet got. You know, it's like, it's like your, uh, your parents have, have written you into the will and they've signed a contract they'll never change their will. You haven't got it yet. It's your hope, the inheritance, but it's sure and certain. That's, that's the picture in the Bible of this hope. This eternal life that God has promised us before the beginning of time. How about that? Before the beginning of time, God had you picked out. Whether he had you picked out because you were later going to choose him, which I think is a bit silly, or you think he picked you out because he just chose to lavish his love upon you, he did it before the beginning of time. Isn't that fantastic? You were in God's mind before the beginning of time, if you were one of his family. See, it's always part of God's plan that we'd have eternal life. The Garden of Eden was never intended to be the final goal. Heaven was. See, in the Garden of Eden, things didn't get out of control so that God had to come up with a plan B. No, it was always God's plan from the beginning of time that there'd be eternal life in heaven for his people. And notice what Paul says next. We've nearly finished. That this... This great news, this hope of eternal life, 
has now been brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God and our Saviour. Ah, so it's the apostolic message, the message the apostles preached and taught with their authority and their commission from Jesus that brings this eternal life, this hope of eternal life to light. The message of the truth that leads to godliness. It's not Paul's message, notice that. It is the message entrusted to him by the command of God. Again, ignore it or explain it away at your peril. If you want to say other than that Paul's words are God's words, you've got serious trouble because you have to doubt the whole of Scripture. The good news about Jesus and the truth of the Bible that leads to godliness were entrusted to Paul by the command of God. So to conclude, folks, I want to finish up. Faith and knowledge, they must go hand in hand. They must go hand in. Don't just rely upon your faith. Your faith needs to be built on knowledge. It is a great goal to aim to read the Bible at least four times a week. We know from research that if God's people are reading the Bible at least four times a week, they have less anxiety, they have more calmness, they have less illness. There's all sorts of good things that go on. They're less likely to go off the rails. Search the Bible, friends, to answer questions that come up. What does the Bible say about the issues of our day? Rather than just accepting something I make up in my mind, some ideology, what does the Bible actually say about it? Search to see what it says about godliness and what godliness is, what it says sin is and how it looks. If you say you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, what does Jesus expect of you in terms of godliness? See, lots of what the Bible says is sin, our world says is okay. And much of what the Bible says is okay, our world says is wrong and sinful. You need to get your answers from the Bible. We need to be people of the word. And in case you think um, I'm, I'm pushing the word up, uh, the, the Bible up and, and becoming a Bible worshipper, no, no, no. All we know of God is what he's revealed to us in his word. These are the words of God. This is God speaking to us. And the work, you know, the work of the Holy Spirit. I I challenge you to read the Bible, particularly the New Testament, and work out what the job of the Holy Spirit is. Because you will find, without a doubt, that one of his major roles is to keep drawing us back to the words of Jesus, to bring to our memory and our mind the words of Jesus. In other words, keep taking us back to the word of God. Well, that's his major work in the world. He has other works, but his, his major work is to keep bringing us back to Jesus, to shine a light on Jesus and Jesus' words. And we've got to be reading the word to do that. How is the Spirit going to apply the words of Jesus to your life if you don't know the words of Jesus? If we don't read it, then we can't bring what we read to our minds for our growth in godliness. Friends, I want to finish. I hope you've got the message. Let's be men and women of the word. Let's build our picture of God and the world and ourselves from the word of God and not impose our views on the word of God. We need to inductively study it and read it and contemplate it. And you don't have to do this full time in a Bible college to be a student of the word of God. 
but we need to know it. I want to encourage you. Read it. Come to church and check what I say. And if I say something you're not sure of, check. You can, you can go online, you know. If I say something like the elect and you go, I'm not sure about that, you can find every place in the Bible where the word elect is used just by going online and getting a concordance. And there it is. Every single verse you would ever want to read. You can see what it says. You can go online and you can say, what does the Bible say about this subject? Not just about a word. And up it'll come. It'll be all there for you to study. It's as dead easy as that. We need to be people of the word of God. How about a pray for us? Oh, loving Father, thank you so much, so much for speaking to us. And not ambiguously, but clearly revealing yourself to us in the words of Scripture, where you've breathed out those words for us. Father, I pray that you will make us more and more men and women who love you and serve you, who read your word, who listen to the promptings of the Holy Spirit, who keeps drawing us back to your words and your message to us. And we want to thank you for the Lord Jesus, for that great news that he came and he died and he rose again for us as his people. And Lord, we just want to serve him. Amen.